Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome a friend and someone I've had the pleasure of working with, Chris Wright, Chief Medical Officer at Seclarion Therapeutics. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, very happy to be here, Rahul. Thanks for the invite. Great. To start off, Chris, we'd love to hear about your background, your career journey, and how you got to where you are today. It's been a really uh, interesting and kind of a wild ride. You know, I started off as an academic, and I'm an MD, PhD, neurologist, neuroscientist. I was um, doing academic medicine for uh, several years, seven, eight years in the local area, Brigham and Mass General and um, the Harvard system. And, you know, I had some collaborations with companies with Merck and and Pfizer, and I was part of this uh, program. It's a clinical investigator training program at MIT and Harvard Medical School. And there we had a chance to kind of learn more about the industry. We went to like FDA advisory committees and things like that. And we had a number of local industry vets come and speak with us. And, And so I learned a little bit about it then. And And then as I was having some collaborations with some of these other pharmaceutical companies as part of my academic research, I was down visiting one of the companies for a presentation, kind of an update, program update. Um, And, you know, one of the people just asked me, they said, like, you know, have you ever considered coming to industry? And I was like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. I never actually thought, really thought about it before, but all the people that I met, you know, were really interested in doing the right thing for patients and really smart people and I thought, you know, I, I had a few grants at home waiting to be revised. And I was like, well, maybe this is an interesting, you know, um, alternative. And so I started to look into it. And um, I ended up talking with a couple of companies, ended up at Vertex for uh, seven and a half years. And um, that was my first industry experience. I started off as a medical director in neurology. And there was a number of preclinical programs I was working on. As things go in industries, some of those didn't go as quickly into the clinic as we were hoping. So I was asked to, I, I asked myself to be assigned to something that we knew was going to go into development and first in human study. And then I got assigned to like an HCV program, hepatitis C program. And I did first started with one and then got assigned another and then a third. And these are comparators for a more advanced asset and um, Blapravir. And those studies didn't really meet the goals. They gave me some um, insights into HCV. And basically, I was then asked to work on the later stage program. And I learned a lot about sort of both early and late stage development. Then I was asked to take on a head of clinical development role and then head of medicines development and medical affairs. And so I had a chance to get asked to do a lot of different things that I wasn't really expecting or even knew about a few years earlier. And also had the the really great privilege to work with a fantastic team of people that got Kaleidico approved and that got, which is, you know, the first disease modifying therapy for cystic fibrosis, a fantastic medicine. It really helps patients. And so I had the opportunity to see that. And, and that was also Vertex's first global filing. So I had an opportunity also to understand not only kind of what's going on in the U.S., but how you develop a drug and get it to patients globally. A great experience there and um, from the both the management perspective and the development perspective. And then I decided I wanted to go to a smaller company. I ended up at Excella Health, which was at the time looking at um, these oral proteins, which is quite interesting. And the science shifted there. And that around that time, I also had heard about Ironwood and got interested in what they were doing there and ended up joining there as a chief development officer. 
And then Ironwood, as many may know, had a spun out Cyclerion, which is where I am today. And then I was involved in, in that, that as well. And right now, Cyclerion is focused on centrally penetrant SGC stimulators. And that's the mechanism whereby nitric oxide acts to increase CGMP. And that's an area that has a lot of impact on the biology of the brain. And that's been known for many decades, but there hasn't really been a molecule like the molecules that we have 6463 to really stimulate that pathway in the brain. So we think it has a lot of potential across many different domains to improve cognitive function and where there's impairment. And we have a number of studies ongoing right now in mitochondrial diseases. We're planning a study in Alzheimer's disease as well. So that's kind of my background up until today and look forward to having uh, further discussions. Great. Thanks, Chris. You mentioned when you were originally in academia and then hadn't really thought about coming to industry. And there's lots of, I'd say, misguided perceptions of what industry really entails. I'm curious what your initial perception was of coming to industry and how that's evolved over time. Did you feel like you didn't quite understand it when you were in academia and then got much more insight when you started to talk to folks? Absolutely. So I would say I didn't understand it a lot. I mean, fortunately, I had the opportunity of taking part in this clinical investigator training program that I mentioned. And also I had sort of collaborations or, you know, grants from companies. And I had an opportunity to visit some of those companies and hear from the people there. And so I think what really struck me is I think you, you hear about companies mostly from like the commercial and drug sales and off-label promotions and, you know, bringing lunches and pens to physicians and stuff like that, you know? So like that's, yeah. that's kind of what you see as a, as a typical physician or even an academic physician in many situations, unless you're really doing clinical trials. So I think that really can impact your impression. And um, But what I found is that as I visited some of these companies and heard more from the people and what they were doing and what really got them excited, you know, it was the patient. It was like making a big difference for patients. And then sort of beyond just the difference that you can make as an individual physician to your individual patient, you also are able to potentially make a difference in, you know, thousands or millions of patients' lives, literally. So I think many people, that's their primary focus. That's what drives them. And so I think there are, you know, highly ethical elements to the business where people are, are focused on, you know, what really matters to other people and, and people that are ill. So that was, I think, a bit of a news to me in some ways, but after having seen that, that made me excited about joining. And then when you get to industry, you know, there's certainly things that like you can't possibly imagine. Like, I don't think I was ever meeting agendas and like stuff like that. Like, you don't really, I don't know, you, you don't have any meeting like management skills. You don't have that many people management skills, or there's no sort of focus on those in a sense, or not as much a focus on those in academia, at least in the past. So I think like you learn a lot about those things. I learned a lot about like how to deal with tough situations, you know, how to interact with different types of people and uh, how to work with a team. That's one of the things that was really nice was to be able to sort of see how, how the teams are shaping up, think about like what types of, you know, skills and capabilities you might want as an addition. And then you know, bringing those people in and seeing how teams evolve and become high performing. And like that's also something that you wasn't really like a concept in your mind when you're in academia. So there's you know, a few things like that. And then, you know, you're also dealing more with the external world as well as an in industry. So, um, you know, there's a lot more collaboration. There's, you know, sort of more involvement in contracts and thinking about intellectual property and how do you interact in the right way. And what's also interesting about industry is it goes from the, like the chemical and the molecular all the way up to like the government and the policy and the social. And like, I don't think I really understood that span as well either. Like it was really, actually it's one of the things that I found quite engaging uh, or I find it quite engaging about industry is like, there's like a huge mind space that you can cover, you know, like 
you can learn a lot from, you know, the molecular, physical, chemical, all the way up to, you know, how societies function, basically. So, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm sure that probably has evolved and changed for sure between academia and industry is sort of how software and data is used, right, to execute mm-hmm. trials, for example. And I'm sure that too has also changed dramatically over the past year, given COVID. Given the suite of experiences you have at different companies and institutions, I would love it if you could give us a sense of how you're seeing the practice of clinical research evolve, especially given COVID and what types of modalities or tools are starting to emerge. There's always been a push for some time to try to, I guess, virtualize clinical trials. There's a number of companies that do that. And, you know, it's more a matter of like, what are the things we can do at home? Can we send things to patients and have it done there and then have them, you know, either collected or returned in a, in a simple way? And can you actually run a clinical trial like that without all of the more um, inflexible aspects and monitoring and, and other activities that are needed? And also to have the patient, you know, have to travel far and maybe get you know, other family members involved to get in and things like that. So like there's been a, a move towards trying to make clinical trials easier, more efficient, less costly, and bringing it closer to home to where the patients are. So even though that was, a, I think, a desire, there was a fair amount of resistance. I mean, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. Some of it is just you're used to doing things in a certain way. You're, you, you want to see the patient yourself as a physician coming in. You know, there's obviously other kind of economic incentives as well, like being as, as at home, they're not being seen in the clinic. That's going to be a difference in terms of, you know, the resources that that you require to run your clinical trial. There have been some kind of elements that have prevented the idea from moving forward as quickly. And I think what COVID did is kind of turned everything up on its head in a way, right? So in in the past, you could say, well, I really need to have that evaluation in the hospital or in my office, or we need to do it at this lab or that lab. You know, those things became an impossibility. So then you had to think about like, well, was I going to have the study not yield any results, even though patients are in the middle of it? Or... Am I going to allow certain things to occur at home, you know, assuming those things can happen at home? Or am I going to, you know, require the, that a monitor comes on site to check the data to make sure it's accurate? Or am I going to allow sort of an electronic version of that to occur? Like, can I photograph it and use that as my source for monitoring, um, you know, data in a study? So, and, and what can patients do? Can patients take their own blood pressure and download the results or call the site with the results? And is that a sufficient way to do things? So, Basically, what happened is that, you know, there was a strong move to externalize as many activities as possible. If if someone's having a, I'm just making up a a cardiac catheterization, obviously, they're not going to do that at home. But but how do you get patients through these visits where they would otherwise just come in, get a physical exam, get some labs tested, maybe get their investigational product? And what happened was, is like it became critical to actually be able to do many of those things or as many as you could at home or close to the patient or at other sites that were not at hospital settings where they were not really doing sort of, you know, more optional types of activities like clinical trials at the height of the pandemic. And so I think there's been a big shift where there's much more openness, I think, both from the clinical site perspective, patient perspective, even the internal industry perspective. I mean, I think I'd heard things like people were worried that patients would feel imposed on if people were sent to their house to do testing, that that would be a difficult thing for patients and that they would, wouldn't want that, but like, they love it. Like they'd much rather have that happen than have to either drive or get driven somewhere, find parking, pay, you know, pay for that, then get reimbursed, find their way to like through the maze of the hospital, <laughs> some office and things like that. Right. But for them, it's, I think it's fantastic. And I think there'll be more and more of that. You know, then the question is, is how far can you take it? Will there be like the mobile imaging machines that go to people's houses? You know, I think that's the, kind of the next step is 
How do you go beyond sort of blood testing and simple pencil and paper test, or you know, in this case, it's mostly maybe a, a tablet or a digital assessment. Um, how do you go beyond that to maybe some of these other things? Is that possible? Does it make sense? Do you do it more like at satellite centers that multiple different sponsors could use? You know, you could imagine like having a few imaging centers that you would send all your patients to that could be selected based on how, you know, close they are to the patient's home or all sorts of things. So, I mean, I think there's a lot more to be learned from that. And and then I think a lot of it is also like, how do you monitor the data that you're getting as it's coming in to make sure it's high quality? I mean, when it's coming in from home, I think there's more and more technologies that are being created. You know, is it automatically downloaded from their phone, you know, through Wi-Fi and then to your site server? And is it being evaluated there for its uh, quality and consistency? And so, like, I think more and more of that will be coming. And I think also as you're thinking about adaptive trial design and, and kind of real-time data, there's a big opportunity there as well to make sure that you're kind of understanding patient responses as you go to the degree that that's possible for the stage of development that you're at, especially early on when you're trying to learn about what your products are doing, uh, or what your you know, potential new medicines are impacting, and it may not be clear initially, then you have the opportunity to maybe look more quickly at outcomes or outputs you know, whether that's lab tests that are done locally, assessments that are done, you know, electronically, or things like, you know, activity monitors or wireless pulmonary, you know, function testing monitors, things like that. So I think a lot of that will continue to thrive. And I think that COVID has really just accelerated the pace of all these innovations. Yeah, I've been wondering for 15 years why uh, you know, some of the archaic tasks and methodologies that we use in clinical trials haven't been meaningfully impacted by software. So I'm personally uh, very excited by this, you know, one silver lining of the pandemic and how quickly our thinking has evolved around what is possible over the last year. And maybe one one addition is that I think that regulatory agencies also were impacted in many ways. And so they actually, just to be realistic and, and to want to try to have a study be conducted in a way that could lead to scientifically valid results and wouldn't be interrupted unnecessarily, there was a lot of flexibility around things like monitoring and ad hoc visits or ad hoc assessments that you might do in a different way than you'd originally planned. There was you know, a lot of flexibility around that. I mean, it took some time, I think, to work through the system, but I would say like in most uh, regions that regulators adapted quite quickly to this new setting and, and provided a lot more flexibility and IRBs as, as well um, from that perspective. So and hopefully there's some lasting effect of that in terms of IRBs and regulatory agencies also being more flexible in certain contexts, you know, where, where that's appropriate. So, you know, in that circumstance, given that you've sort of seen uh, the clinical world sort of maybe make a decade worth of progress in yeah. a handful of months, another, I think, uh, probably big shift that's also happened over the past year has been the formation of Cyclerion, right, as a, yeah. a spin-out biotech would love to learn about that process of forming this biotech, not necessarily as a new company, but as a spin-out from the historical Ironwood and how you thought about the organization and fundraising and things like that. So it was about uh, about two years ago now that Cyclearin spun out of Ironwood. And you know, I, I had never really been experienced in, in a spin-out or been involved in that in the past. And so it was quite interesting. I mean, uh, what was becoming apparent was that there were sort of two businesses under one hood and that they might function better and more efficiently and, and more nimbly as two separate businesses. And so the idea there would be sort of to specialize among the different management teams and, and personnel so that they were, you know, laser focused on the areas that these, you know, more focused companies were moving forward. And so 
at that time, there was you know, Ironwood, which was more of a GI kind of primary care company. And then there was this pipeline of assets that were STC stimulators that were you know, focused more on serious and rare diseases. And so you know, when you had those two things together, that was pretty complicated and made it more difficult to sort of focus and take into account all of the different you know, potential relationships between the pipeline and the marketed products and the different therapeutic areas. And so by splitting those and having a very clear and refined focus, and then also staffing the companies with management that was excited about the different approaches, you know, either GI primary care or in, in serious diseases, earlier development, mid, mid-stage development, those were, you, know, you could kind of select for the individuals or would self-select into the company that really met their interests the best and made them most excited and were the things that they wanted to do. And so you get sort of efficiencies from that and focus and the sense is that that, that should, you know, as two parts be greater than the, than the former whole um, in terms of uh, the value, the focus and the agility um, in terms of moving forward in the different areas. That was quite interesting. And I mean, I think that definitely occurred. Like people were very, even before the company split, there's a lot of planning. And during the planning stage, you know, it becomes apparent that there's two companies within a company and people are sort of almost already working in those new companies that hasn't been formalized. So then when the split comes, you know, it's sort of like, oh, it's really happening now, but it might not feel as different as you might think it would by the time you get there. You know, there was a lot of thought put into the organizational design. There were new boards as well. And one of the companies would need a new CEO and chief medical officer, et cetera. So there were new hires made from that perspective with a, with a thought of where the focus should be for that company and where the expertise should be. You know, in addition, this was a spin out where Cyclarian was kind of fully independent from Ironwood financially. So you know, the company had a number of programs that were like in mid stages of development, which is a costly endeavor. So in the context of not receiving you know, additional finances from, from Ironwood, uh, we had to go out and raise money for the company and raise $175 million to fund Cyclarian for the first two years and get it through um, its proximal catalysts and, and get through those initial larger studies. So that's a bit of a different type of a company than, say, a startup that starts out from scratch that has like three or four people that then builds up, you know, sort of more organically over time and adds things in. And you can see things moving through the pipeline and you, know, you hire um, in advance of, you know, an asset getting into clinical and, and then you hire in advance of like your phase three and as you need it and you evolve like that. In this case, you know, you sort of have these assets that interestingly, like had been investigated and studied and developed or discovered over, you know, like a seven, eight year period already earlier as Ironwood. So you're kind of bringing all of that knowledge and history into the company. It's not like all of a sudden, like a new entity that has no history still. I think that's that's a bit of a different feeling than perhaps a straight up startup. It's interesting to have gone through that, to experience that and, and realize that maybe that's an obvious thing, but not all sort of company formations are equivalent. And you, know, you have to think carefully about your specific situation and manage the business toward that specific situation in the history. And so that was an interesting learning as well. That's great. And I'm curious, you know, there's been obviously other models. You obviously commented on um, starting up biotechs net new, but there's also models of development like SPACs and the Royvent model, for example. Any chance you just quickly comment on your perspective there and, you know, how the audience should think about those? You know, that's interesting. I mean, there's a, there's been a lot of evolution in sort of the thinking around how you start companies. And, you know, there's sort of the, the classic approach in some ways, which is you find a new idea or technology and that gets out licensed. Then you get funding for that and you gradually grow and earn your way forward as you get results that are 
supportive and you get more funding and it sort of becomes ideally the virtuous cycle as opposed to the opposite, which of course can also occur, but it's a risky business. But um, that's sort of the classic approach as far as I understand. And I think what we've seen, and some of this has been going on for quite some time, there's certainly some innovative venture funds that actually do research in their own wells and then take that research and, and found companies with their own funds as well as other you know participating investors. There's a situation a little bit like the Roy Vent model you know, where you have either like an umbrella company that has a number of individual companies or assets that are sort of sent off independently, independently incorporated, and they sort of survive or fail on their own, so to speak. And then there's sort of like the SPAC model, which is a new one. There's all sorts of different ways that I think people are trying to fund companies. And sometimes it's thinking around like the risks. Probably want to have a collection of assets, not just one. And and how do you go about like kind of financing that and organizing those assets in a way that as they read out, you can identify the value created from them and, and make sure that you can capture that in a focused way. And so that each of the businesses also doesn't interfere with the other in terms of prioritization, right? So that's another advantage. It's like the split. You're spinning something out so that the two entities can focus on their own things and not have to try to, you know, look at those things in a combined way and try to understand what to prioritize. They can prioritize their key areas immediately. I think that'll probably continue. There'll probably be all sorts of new ways of doing things. I mean, I don't know that there'll be any one way. There'll probably be more new ways. That's probably, that's my guess is like, in some cases, it might make sense to have a single asset company. In some cases, you know, it's a platform and, and then you have multiple assets and then you want to split those into individual kind of units, so to speak. Maybe your idea is that you come across several different assets that you think might work well together in a company. And so, you know, then you won't get funding for that combination of assets, and then you can decide exactly how you parse that. But I'm sure there'll continue to be creative innovation in the space of company creation as we go forward, and we're pretty much seeing that on a regular basis. You know, inherent to R&D in our space is a high degree of, of risk and attrition, and every single company and every single CMO has to deal with this. I'm curious what you have learned or any pearls of wisdom that you could pass along from a management perspective in terms of managing this juxtaposition of keeping everyone highly motivated as assets progress and balancing that excitement with the high likelihood of failure along the way. That's a tough question. And, and one of the things that I think there's a constant struggle with, particularly as you get into um, smaller companies where there may not be as diverse a portfolio. So in some places, if one asset kind of fails and there's many other things going on and you know there's new things coming all the time, you need to get to some kind of critical mass. And that's more what for larger companies that have multiple programs. Some go away and new ones come up and people get reassigned. And there's always something to do more or less. I mean, Obviously, that doesn't always have to be the case, but there's more likelihood of sort of some steadiness in that kind of context. Although, as, as we well know, you know, often changes are made in, in larger companies as well that are wholesale. And as you get to kind of a smaller company and you have you know, fewer assets, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that you have to kind of think about. So from the, the management board kind of risk, risk management perspective, you know, it's always good to make sure you have sort of some backups. <laughs> or more than one asset or things working in parallel, more than one ongoing study. So if one readout is negative, you still have something more that you can move towards and that that will potentially provide you with a success, but give you more chances to try to understand what else you can do to keep the trains moving and to great medicine with the patients. And so there's sort of some strategies around that, like you know pipeline and timing and asset numbers and mechanism differences. So you can think about maybe diversification as a key one, obviously, so to help to deal with the risks that you mentioned. 
Uh, much of that discussion, you know, would happen kind of more at the company strategic level and maybe not be as important to, you know, people working on a given clinical trial that they're focused in their area. And they may be, you know, worried about what the outcome is going to mean for them. Maybe a couple of things in that realm. I would say it's really important to plan for success and to think about what the next steps are with the individuals that are, you know, doing the work on the ground for a given clinical study or area to kind of keep the future in mind, to be excited about like what the future brings. And I think that keeps people motivated and excited. You know, people are never going to forget the risk. I mean, if you're in the industry, you kind of know that basically, you know, more likely than not, something's going to fail, just like the numbers, right? I think people mostly understand that. And if you can't, that doesn't fit with your sort of personal um, risk profile, then you may go to a larger place with more assets and a broader pipeline where one failure is not going to have as much of an impact. But many people working in the biotech industry understand there's a potential for failure. And you know, part of it is like the risk reward. So you know, it's, it is riskier, but if you're at a place where you can make a difference for a molecule that will help patients substantially and that's successful, then in addition to the reward of helping patients, there's you know, other rewards as well, potentially. So I think that you have to kind of think about your risk tolerance, maybe your stage in your career and your life and other things, and which type of risk situation is one that you're best suited for. Again, planning for success, having uh, idea, you know, contingency plans, ideas for what you'd be doing if this study was successful or if it wasn't. Are there other things that you can already initiate that will give you an extension of the possibilities for the future? I think those are the, the main things, I think. And then the management team should plan for, you know, what if the outcome is negative and how would that be handled? I mean, I think, you know, you want to make sure that that's not a reactive process. Um, I think you want to think um, in advance about what the implications would be for your organization and how you might, you know, refine the organization in the context of negative outcomes. Um, you know, what are the things you might want to pivot to? Um, what are the next things that you can point to that could be of interest? But I think those are things that you, you know, you discuss more like on this strategic management board kind of level. Whereas as you're as you're discussing, you know, with the team that's working on the study. It's really like how critical it is to get the study executed in a timely fashion and get strong results, thinking about like what are the next steps that we can now prepare for, you know, as we're planning for success. And some of that's going to be dependent on your degree of resources, but there's lots of things that you can do to prepare for your clinical trial outcomes and uh, in terms of planning for success. And I think those things are, are things that will keep people motivated. So yeah, those would be my comments, I think, in this in this area. Excellent. Well, Chris, on that note, thank you for sharing what I'm sure is a very small portion of your insights and learnings in terms of the life sciences industry. It was a pleasure having you on and thank you for your time. It was a pleasure to be here and um, thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.